0: But this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Let's give careful attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing, let's focus our attention this evening upon Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, as the Apostle Paul expounds for us the Gospel. He's declared that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says that the salvation of the Jew and the salvation of the Gentile, the salvation of the one that is a member of the covenant community, who is near as it were, and the one who is outside the covenant community, who is far off as it were, the salvation of either types of persons is the same. There's no difference, there's no fundamental difference for the salvation of a church member or a non-church member, for a Jew, for a Greek. There's no difference. We've, We've all come into this world conceived and born in sin. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we're saved, it's the same salvation. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. And we saw this morning that the greatest threat to humanity today is the wrath of Almighty God. We considered that every single minute in this world, roughly a hundred people enter into eternity. Most of them into a lost eternity. Jesus says that for everyone who is presently not believing in Him, presently outside of Christ, presently living in unbelief and in sin, that the wrath of God abides on them. And then when they die, they enter into the, the, something of the fullness of God's wrath. Of course, there will be greater hell to pay when their body is raised from the ground at the last day. But they enter in to something of the wrath to come. So this is the greatest threat to humanity today as it was in Paul's day. And according to Paul, our only hope of deliverance from that wrath to come, or even that wrath that abides upon the children of disobedience, the only hope is propitiation. Jesus Christ, God has sent Him into the world, called Him, commissioned Him, anointed Him as the Redeemer, and has set Him forth as a propitiation. Satisfying, appeasing, turning away God's infinite wrath against sinners by way of His own obedience and sacrifice and resurrection from the dead, and securing God's favor and acceptance. Even as Noah sacrificed the animals after he got out of the ark after the flood, and those burnt offerings ascended into heaven and they were a sweet smelling aroma in the nostrils of God Himself. This sacrifice that Christ has offered up secures God's favor and acceptance for God's people. And the word Paul uses for propitiation is the word that the Greek Old Testament uses to describe or translate the mercy seat. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant where every year the the high priest would sprinkle the blood of that atoning sacrifice to signify God's mercy in atoning for the sins of His people through Christ to come. This propitiation, we said, required the shedding of Christ's blood. It is by His blood, according to the Apostle. And it's clear from Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we see this from Genesis to Revelation. We saw that this blood is precious. It is the precious blood of God Almighty in human flesh. This is the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The God-man. God with us. It's something to be held in high esteem. It's a blood of sprinkling that cleanses us from all sin. It's a blood of consecration that sets apart the people of God and equips them unto a life of good works and obedience. It's blood of intercession sprinkled upon the mercy seat, the throne of grace. We have an advocate interceding, ever living to intercede for us in heaven as we speak. And we ought not to sin as as John says, but when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous who guarantees God's merciful favor and all the spiritual blessings laid up for us in heavenly places, guarantees that these things will flow to us by the Holy Spirit. And we can be certain that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. These blessings flow to us. And it's a blood that speaks. A blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel which cried out from the ground for justice, this blood speaks a word of mercy. It is finished. A word of assurance for the people of God. Now, I had intended this morning to make five or six points in, in connection with this blood speaking. What, what is it speaking? It's speaking of mercy, but there's so much more in the rich teaching of Scripture on this point. We're going to hold that probably for when we come back to the Lord's table. So we'll hold that thought, and really at this point, proceed to the next, uh, the next aspect of the text that we need to consider this evening. And that is that Christ has been set forth as a propitiation. We've seen that He is a propitiation. He turns away God's wrath, and He obtains God's favor. But you see, there's something in that explanation that can be misleading that we can easily misunderstand when we hear this teaching about propitiation and there have been many throughout the history of the church in recent centuries that have struggled with this teaching because they say that it's really slanderous against god the father it misrepresents god the father It presents god the father as filled with wrath and hatred against sinners and here comes jesus and He satisfies the wrath of this angry God and procures the favor of God the Father, but really what it does is it makes the love of God the Father to be something that is a result of the atonement. It presents God the Father as a God who who has not loved His people from before the foundation of the world, but rather as, as just an angry, wrathful God with no love in His heart, but who is just satisfied and appeased by the sacrifice. Okay, I'll tolerate these people. There are many who represent the doctrine of propitiation in that way, and that's why various modern translations have sought to avoid this word. Certainly, modern liberal theology has sought to distance itself from the idea of propitiation. And, and we need to answer this, and really, we don't, we don't need to so much answer it as to read the text in which this doctrine of propitiation is set forth in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Because notice that what he says is this, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. And what Paul is asserting here is that this redemption, this propitiation was initiated by the love of God the Father. That the atonement is not the cause of God's love for His people. The atonement does not produce or uh, in some way sort of again twist the arm of God the Father and force Him to love His people. But rather, the atonement is the result of God's love. And we need to look into this in greater detail to understand some of the complexity. But when we say that, that God is angry with the wicked every day, when we say that He hates sin and that His hatred, His abhorrence of sin and sinners is manifested every day, we're not denying His eternal love and desire to save His people. What does it mean that God so loved the world and gave His only begotten Son to save sinners. What does it mean that God loved those who remained and abided under His wrath? What, does, what, what do we mean by that? How can God hate someone and love them at the same time? And I think what we mean here is that God has good intentions toward those with whom He is justly displeased. When we speak of God loving those and having a a loving heart from all eternity, even for those who for quite some time were children of wrath, who abided under His wrath, what we're saying is that God loved them. In other words, He had good intentions toward those with whom He was justly displeased. So when we say the wrath of God abides on sinners... And that through the death of Christ being applied to them at their conversion, that wrath is removed and the favor of God is applied to them. What we're really saying is that those sinners were abhorrent in the sight of God in the sense that they were filthy and foul. And God was justly displeased with them when He looked at them, when He evaluated them. They were children worthy of wrath. They were children of disobedience and He was justly displeased against their moral character. That is what we mean when we say that God's wrath burns against the wicked. But we also understand that from all eternity, God has had a benevolence, a good intention to save many of the people against whom His wrath burns by way of displeasure. Many of the people who are displeasing in His sight, He has nevertheless intended to do good toward those displeasing sinners. And for that reason, He has sent His Son into the world to turn away His wrath. In other words, to remove all that is displeasing from those upon whom He has set these good intentions. That He has sent His Son into the world to remove the sin that is displeasing, to remove the guilt, to remove the foulness and the defilement, and all of these things, and to replace it with that which is good and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. So it is true that Christ's work of propitiation on the cross turned away God's wrath and procured or obtained His favor. But you see, this is something that was eternally the plan of the Father. The good intention of the Father. He sent His Son into the world commissioning Him to do what? To remove the source of that displeasure and to replace it with a source of joy and delight and acceptance. So the redemption, the propitiation that we're speaking of here is something that proceeded eternally from the benevolence, the good intention, the covenant love of God the Father. Whom God set forth. Whom God set forth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the One whom God the Father has set forth. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1 says that our acceptance in God's beloved Son was nevertheless something that the Father had decreed from before all time. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So how did God the Father put us in this position to receive His favor, to receive all these blessings? Well, He did it in Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, one mind, one will, one power, one God, ordained that we would be saved by Christ. And and the way the Bible sets it forth, the way the persons of the Trinity operate, it, it presents it as God the Father decreeing it, and God the Son accomplishing it, and God the Holy Spirit applying it. And so it is, as it were, in in that order of operations within the Trinity, it is God the Father who initiates. And it's, it's because of God the Father sending His Son into the world that we have all of these spiritual blessings in Christ. That's why we have forgiveness. That's why we have a perfect righteousness in the sight of God. That's why we're adopted as God's children. That's why we have the Holy Spirit for sanctification. That's why we'll be glorified and resurrected and spend eternity with our covenant God. It's because the Father took the initiative. We see this again, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. And here, as is the case most often, the term God is referring to the Father. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So... Again, did the work of Christ appease God's wrath and displeasure against sinners who deserve that displeasure? Yes. Did the the work of Christ secure all of the grace and favor and blessing that the Father has intended for His people? Yes. But it's all a token of the Father's love. That's why He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Rightly understood, the doctrine of propitiation brings honor and glory. It magnifies the love of God the Father. It does not retract one ounce from our understanding of the love of God the Father. Uh, this is brought out in, in many other portions of Scripture. John chapter six, verse thirty-eight. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. My friends, we ought not to view God the Father as remote and distant and discompassionate and and well, it's, it's God the Father who's angry with the wicked every day and it's Jesus who satisfies the wrath and saves us from the wrath to come. My friends, we ought to be thinking of God the Father as the One who ordered and ordained the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He gave us, dear believer, He gave you to His Son from all eternity in the covenant of redemption. And the Lord Jesus Christ as God-man saved you from your sins as the submissive servant of the Lord in history on account of the Father's command for Him to do so. It's the Father who ordained these things. And who, who we ought to think of when we think of God's love. Think of the person of the Father. When Paul gives a benediction to the Corinthians, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ but it's the love of God. The love of God the Father. We ought to be thinking of God the Father when we think of the love of God. Not merely of Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, but of the fact that He did so because the Father sent Him. Romans 8, verse 32 speaks of God the Father in this way, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You can come to your heavenly Father and ask for help. Now you go through Christ. He's the mediator. But Jesus had to deal with this issue among his disciples at one point. He says, no, you can go directly to the Father. Uh, you, you don't need to ask me in, 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 a sort of, uh, in the sense of thinking that you can't go to the Father. No, through me you can go directly to your heavenly Father. And you can ask Him. You can ask the One who spared not His only begotten Son. And if He spared not His Son, He will spare no expense in giving you the grace you need, in a time of need. You can go to your Heavenly Father. He loves you. He gave His Son for you. He has set forth His Son as the propitiation for your sins. We could look at Hebrews 5 when it speaks of our sympathetic High Priest. But, but it says that our High Priest, Jesus Christ, didn't take this upon Himself. He was ordained and commissioned by His heavenly Father. And so again, even in His priestly office, even as our advocate and intercessor at the right hand of God, showing forth His finished work so that God sees it, and that it, as it were, stirs up the mercy and compassion of God, Yes, Jesus is doing that, and yes, it has a real power to secure the ongoing application of redemption to each believer. But guess what? The Father commissioned him to do it. The Father is essentially saying, I want you to do this. I want you, as it were, to remind me of your finished work. I'm commissioning you to die for their sins, to propitiate my wrath. To gain my favor and to stir up that favor and to apply that favor day in and day out. It's the love of God the Father. And the Father has publicly displayed his Son, he has lifted up his Son, he has set forth his Son, Jesus Christ, as the all sufficient redeemer of guilty sinners. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that. This is the one, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, whom God the Father has set forth as an all-sufficient Redeemer. Jesus has the most recognizable name in human history. God has set Him forth in a unique way. Whether people love Him or despise Him or truly embrace Him or pay lip service to Him, whatever it is, people know the name Jesus. Uh, many people today, you know, they do these, uh, these kinds of surveys and, and they try to, you know, it's, it's comical. They make these videos on YouTube. People don't even know who George Washington is. People don't know. There's many, there's great ignorance. People know who Jesus is, or at least in some sense they've heard his name. They could say something that's true about him. The most recognizable name in human history. And, and it, by the way, that's, that's going to go a lot further. That. God's just getting warmed up. He's just getting warmed up. John chapter 12 says that he lifted him up on the cross to draw all nations to himself. Uh, but it's a start, most recognizable name in human history. And God did that at the cross. He raised him up as I said John 12:32, Jesus says the son of man will be lifted up in reference to the way that he would die for our sins. He was hoisted up on the cross. He was lifted up on the cross. And God has set Him forth in that manner to draw all nations to Himself. John 19, verses 19 and 20 says that they put this proclamation above His head. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that as, it was, as, as He was hoisted up on the cross and as this placard was placed above His head, It says that many people, as they were walking by, saw that message. And that's how crucifixion operated. It it, it was an attempt by the Romans, not only to torture an individual that they considered to be a grievous criminal, but it was to hoist them up for all to see the utter misery that was inflicted by the Roman state upon its enemies. But he was hoisted up. And the Bible says he despised the shame. He considered it a small thing compared to the joy set before him of gathering those nations that would be drawn to himself. But the fact is that in the cross of Christ, on Mount Calvary, God set him forth, exalted him. And this was not done in a corner. As Paul tells a Roman official in Acts chapter 26, verse 26, he says, listen, You and I both know this was not done in a corner. These things were prophesied in the Old Testament, but even more than that, when Jesus died on the cross, the land was covered in darkness at noontime. Whether that's the land locally, whether that's the entire earth, people debate, but this was something that got the notice of everyone. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. So, between all of these things, the earthquake, and people coming out of the tombs, and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, this was not done in a corner. When the Son of God was lifted up on the cross, these things were made public in the providence of God. And even if the darkness over the land was only the land surrounding Jerusalem, there were Roman officials that would have Sent word back to Rome that the entire place went dark at noontime. And there would have been Jews throughout the entire inhabitable earth. We know that they were all over, virtually every nation under heaven. Those Jews would have heard that the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. So this was not done in a corner. When God sent forth his son, he lifted him up on the cross in a unique way. But Christ is set forth and lifted up in addition through the preaching of the Gospel. It's not only in the act of the crucifixion that He was lifted up and set forth, but Paul says in Galatians 3, 1 and 2 that when he preached the Gospel to the Galatians, that Jesus Christ was set forth and portrayed among them. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, when the gospel was preached and people heard it and believed it, It was, as it were, Christ crucified being visibly portrayed in the preaching of the Gospel. Christ was lifted up. Christ was publicly displayed. Jesus Christ was set forth by the Word and Spirit of God according to the Father's appointment through the preaching of the Gospel. And every time Christ crucified, Christ the propitiation, Christ the Redeemer of guilty sinners is set forth in the preaching of the Gospel Romans 10.21 says, as it were, God is stretching out His hands all day long, even to a willful and disobedient people. Stretching out His hands. Which of course reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, as it were. Stretching out His hands and, and by the Spirit's power, drawing all nations to Himself. The Father sets forth His Son in addition through the right observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when we observe the Lord's Supper in a biblical and believing manner, that we proclaim Christ's death until He comes. That by faith, we're able to discern the Lord's body and blood. We're able to discern something of the crucifixion and of the finished work of Christ in the Lord's Supper, proclaiming it, declaring it, So that God's believing people may be strengthened in their faith. And so that we might even have a witness to those around us in the watching world. God has in these ways declared and set forth His Son as a propitiation for sinners. And according to Paul, this public display must be perceived and received through faith. Notice the emphasis here. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. Faith is essential. The hearing of faith. The eyes of faith. Perceiving this propitiation. Perceiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Having an ear to hear. Listening to it. Isaiah chapter 55 urges us to respond to the free offer of the Gospel by opening our ears. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. There it is. It must be heard in faith. The hearing of faith as we saw in Galatia. It must be seen by faith. We must, as it were, look unto Jesus by faith. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and following. The Lord says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He goes on to call upon God's people. Sorry, that was chapter 44 providentially relevant as well. But Isaiah 45, verse 22, "...look to Me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to Me and be saved, all you ends of the earth." So this is saying we must hear in faith the message of the Gospel. We must look by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been set forth by the the Father as a propitiation. We need to look to Him with eyes of faith. You go on in, in those verses in Isaiah, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, Every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To Him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against Him. Now, Paul quotes this text in Philippians 2. Many of us are very familiar with it. And he he says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul applies that to the second coming. And that's legitimate. There's an element here that would apply to the second coming such that even those who reject the gospel will have their knees broken and be forced to bow at the last day. They will all be ashamed and incensed, who are incensed against Him. Absolutely. But for some reason, in the church today, we've lost... Uh, what we might even say is the primary emphasis of the text in Isaiah. And that is people looking to Jesus Christ and willingly bowing the knee. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And declaring, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. Notice, in the context of Isaiah, yes, it applies to the second coming and to people who reject Christ bowing the knee in shame at the last day. But notice that the primary emphasis of Isaiah is uh, that the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall take an oath and notice the oath that they're taking surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength that is not emphasizing again it's of course it's legitimate it's the apostle Paul it's under inspiration that 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 has relevance for the last day at the end of verse 24, but here it's speaking of saving faith. Saving repentance. Bowing the knee willingly and looking unto Jesus for righteousness and strength and redemption. This is a passage that would persuade us of a very optimistic view of the Gospel in history. And not simply paying lip service to, to the power of God by saying, well, at the last day, people will be forced to bow. This is saying people throughout the world will willingly bow the knee. A- and that's what is necessary if you're to be saved. If anyone is to be saved, we must hear, we must see, we must believe, we must look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What does it mean to look unto Jesus. See, we can speak in this way, and we can, we can talk about looking unto Jesus, and oh, isn't that quaint, isn't that uh, emotionally, you know, it gets our emotions stirred when we refer to this text and that text, uh, but what does it mean to look to Jesus? What do we mean when we say that? When we say that if you don't look to Jesus, you're going to remain under the wrath of God. What do we mean by looking unto Jesus? Jesus. Well, we mean this. First of all, we're speaking of the eye of the mind. Uh, You can't look unto Jesus physically, quite obviously. His human nature is at the right hand of God in heaven. We can't see Him, so you can't look to Him physically. Uh, It it doesn't involve looking at supposed statues or pictures of Jesus or watching the chosen miniseries or something like that. It means to fix your mind on Him. So if you're looking to Jesus right now, you are fixing your mind upon Him. You are envisioning, not some kind of picture of Jesus in your mind, but you're envisioning the reality of Jesus Christ, and you're envisioning Him as the Bible presents Him, which first of all means you're you're fixing your mind on Him as one who is present. Jesus is fully God. That means He is present here right now. And so if you're looking unto Jesus in the middle of this worship service, or if you're looking unto Jesus on your drive home from the worship service, or if you're looking unto Jesus wherever you may be at any given time, if you're looking unto Him, you're fixing your mind on Him as One who is present at that very moment. And you're fixing your mind on Him as One who's not only present, but one who is capable of saving you, capable of helping you. You know, we we look unto Jesus throughout the Christian life, not just for our initial conversion and, and justification. We look to Him all the time, so this applies to you if you're being converted right now. It applies to you if you've been saved for decades. When you're looking unto Jesus, you're looking unto Him as one who is present and one who is fully capable, all sufficient to meet the need of what you're asking of Him. In this case, in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. In the Lord, I can be forgiven of my sins. In the Lord, I can be reconciled to God through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. He's present, He's fully capable. You're also fixing your mind on Jesus Christ as one who is willing. As one who is willing to save all who put their trust in Him. He's willing to save. He he came into this world as a man, lived a life of sorrows, obeyed the law unto death on the cross, rose again and is in heaven now, and the whole purpose of all of these things is to save sinners. He's willing to save all who look to Him, all who call upon Him. So you need to believe that. You need to... Fix your mind on Him as one who's present, who's fully able to do what needs to be done to save you from your sins, as one who is willing to save you, who says, come unto Me. He's more willing than the sinners that He saves to receive them unto Himself. He's willing. All who come unto Him. He says, I won't cast any of them away. So He's willing to save all who come to Him. And also, you must fix your mind on Him as one who is reliable, one who is faithful. He's not fickle. He's not vacillating. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So you don't have to worry about Him changing His mind. And, and well, He today, you know, He loves me. He loves me not. This kind of thing. No, you must. Fix your mind on Him as one who is present, one who is able, one who is willing, and one who is fully reliable and trustworthy. That if you surrender yourself into His safekeeping, He will not let anyone snatch you out of His hands. He will be faithful. He's able to preserve you. He's able to keep you. He's able to save you. And He's willing to do that. And He's reliable. You can count on Him. You can trust Him. Fix your mind on Him as present, capable, willing, reliable, and one who is exclusive. One who is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. One who is the only way into the presence of the Father. As we say when taking marriage vows, forsaking all others. To look to Jesus means He's present, He's able, He's willing, He's reliable, and He's the only one that can save me. I look away from myself. I look away from all other possible solutions. Jesus is not something I'm just trying out on a trial basis for 30 days, money back guarantee. Jesus is not... Listen, He's the only hope that you have. And you have to fix your mind on Him in that respect. Looking away from everyone and everything else and looking to Him. Now an objection at this point says that, look, what's the point of saying all this? Sinners are by nature blind and unbelieving. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says that in our sinful, unconverted, natural condition, we're blinded. Verse 3, the Gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. They're blindfolded. It goes on to say their, their very minds, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So what's the point of saying, look unto Jesus, when unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. He can't look unto Jesus. He's blinded. The Gospel is veiled because of his depravity and sinfulness. And and moreover, Satan himself blinds the minds of those who do not believe. So what's the point? But you see, though those things are true, they in no way hinder the work of the Gospel. Because this Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This is the Gospel that Jesus says is declared to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And it brings them to life. Just as surely as Jesus' command, Lazarus come forth, brought forth Lazarus from the dead. Even so, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live." He later uses this imagery to speak of the last day when he raises up all mankind to be judged. But here, this language is speaking of the power of the Gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus' voice, indeed His blood, is speaking that better word of the Gospel. And the voice of the Son of God causes the dead in sin to arise. He opens their eyes. He gives sight to the blind. And it's by this word of the Gospel. You say, yes, but again, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. Yes, but Jesus said that to Nicodemus. But notice the other things that He said to Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 14. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus doesn't say whoever perceives that they're being sovereignly converted and regenerated, then has warrant to look to the Son of God and believe for eternal life. No, He says to Nicodemus, the very man who is lost and dead in sin, the very man who needs to be born again, He directly commands him to believe. And the Holy Spirit uses that direct command to believe to save sinners. And we we know that Nicodemus eventually came to faith. But it says, Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Even so, must the Father set forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood. And my friends, that command to look unto Jesus as the Israelites looked unto the serpent on the pole in the days of Moses is instructive for us this evening. We need to take in this analogy, this illustration, this type and shadow that the Lord Jesus brings to our attention. Numbers chapter 21, verse 7. The people had been complaining in their foolishness, in their discontentment, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people. Many of them died. So people are dying of this plague of serpents in the midst of Israel's camp. We're told, verse 7, "...therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us." So here, the people are impacted with the conviction of sin. They see the the plague, the curse, the misery, the consequences of their sin. People are being bitten. People are dying. They see the misery that their sin has brought about. And they come to Moses and they confess their sin. We have sinned. We have sinned. And here's the specific sin that we committed. We were complaining and murmuring against the Lord and against you. And they come to their earthly mediator who is a picture of Christ. And they say, intercede, pray to the Lord, that He may take these serpents away from us. Save us from the consequences of our sin. And so Moses prayed for the people. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, shall live. Why a serpent? Well, because Jesus became a curse for His people. Cursed is the serpent. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. God sets forth His Son as a propitiation, as the curse bearer, hanging on that accursed tree of Calvary's cross. I think it also is a testimony to the fact that at the cross, Satan's head was crushed. And it's actually putting on display Christ's victory over the serpent. Himself, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. But in any event, this is a picture of Christ crucified for sinners on the cross. And God says, lift up this fiery serpent and whomever looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent He lived. My friends, this account in Numbers is intentionally very brief. It's intentionally very simple. It's meant to convey a very simple point about a very simple faith that is required for salvation. We simply need to look to Jesus. Yes, by nature we're unwilling and therefore incapable. I understand that. But what's being asked of us is very, very simple. It's not complicated. It's not in itself difficult, except for our stubborn, depraved hearts. Look to Jesus. If they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were healed. If they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were healed. If you look to Jesus in the way we've just described, you fix your mind on Him as present, as fully capable and willing to save you from your sins, as one whom you can trust, and the only one that can possibly save you from your sins, there's no plan B, then that's all you need to do. Just look to Him, fix your mind on Him, believe Him. We're told that we ought not to be so concerned about The doctrines of grace and of God's sovereignty in the sense that these things would be a hindrance. They're not a hindrance. The doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of God's sovereign election. These are things that ought to urge us all the more to look unto Jesus. John 6.39 This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And you say, how do I know? If I was given to Christ from all eternity. How do I know? I'm, I'm filled with despair and confusion. Ah, but the next verse. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. What is God's purpose? It's to save all for whom Christ died. All whom He has eternally decreed to be saved from before the foundation of the world. Yes. But we can state that with equal assurance and clarity and with absolute confidence that it is His will that everyone who sees the Son, who looks to the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. That's God's will. That's God's decree. Look to Him. Believe on Him. Surrender yourself to Him. You say, I'm already saved. Yes, but you need salvation and its benefits every single day. You need to be looking unto Jesus every single day. Throughout your day. Throughout your work week. Conceiving Him in your mind as present capable, willing, reliable, and as the only one that can help you in this situation, look to Him. And the fact of the matter in closing is that this message of the cross is utter foolishness to those who are perishing. It's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. If you're unconverted and the Lord is not working in your heart right now, you may be tempted to think that what we're doing, this, this is just an exercise in wishful thinking and futility in foolishness that's the message of the cross to those who are perishing but Paul says elsewhere to those who are being saved it is the power of God to those that are being saved that that are saved that are continuing to be saved and upheld and preserved by this message of the cross it is beautiful it is perfect wisdom it is infinite power, and might. It is glorious. And my simple question to you this evening is, what is this message of the cross to you? What is the doctrine of propitiation by the blood of Christ to you? Is it weakness or is it power? Is it foolishness or is it the wisdom of God? Can you join the Apostle in what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? verses 20 and 21. Can you agree with him? Can you you honestly join with the Apostle in affirming these words? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching. foolishness of the message preached. You could translate that different ways. The foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Do you believe that? Do you affirm that? My dear friend, when you're asked to, to look to Christ as opposed to rejecting Christ, when you're asked and commanded to hear Him as opposed to rejecting Him, What you're being asked to do, ultimately, is to receive this message of the cross as a testament to God's power, God's might, God's wisdom. And if you close your ears and shut your eyes to it, what you're saying is this cross of Christ, this propitiation by His blood, this Gospel of grace is utter weakness, it is foolish, it is nonsense. At the end of the day, you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to get off the fence and decide. Is it weakness or is it power? Is it foolishness uh, or or rather, is uh, is it wisdom? May the Lord enable us as those who are being saved to confess it to be the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love this Gospel. We look unto this Savior. All of our hope, all of our confidence is in Him. We believe You, Father. We believe also in Him. Enable us each day as we head into the week that is set before us to be fixing our mind upon our Savior as He is with us throughout the day, as He is present interceding for us and giving us help in time of need, as He is able and willing and reliable, and as He is our only hope. Lord, increase our faith for Jesus' sake. Amen.